The Pilbara Killings by Sabine T. Shetland, as read by Andrews Barr. Chapter 8 By mid-afternoon, Professor Atwood had dispensed with young Lisa. She was all bottled away in smears and tubes, vials of her blood and gastric juices and of her urine, pieces of her uterus and her brain, scrapes under her fingernails for fragments of DNA, and a sample of rope tying her toes, all packed away and labelled with the text to mark urgent. Requests had gone out for all the designer drugs, the psychedelics and dissociatives, the stimulants and the sedatives, the date raper, the forget-me pills, the strong illegals, crystal meth and ketamine that turned the brain against the body. She'd not shown those vast mood swings from raucous laughter to morose isolation that would have hinted at any such addiction, but he ticked the testing page for everything anyway and left the comments part blank, a fishing expedition. A good morning's work called for a hearty lunch and he unwrapped the Osabuko his wife had made, loading it into the microwave. There was nothing like a fleshy meal after dissection, fitting somehow. The attendant had brought old Agnes Armitage in and Zimmerman had rung in wanting to be there when she was done. Atwood waited a full hour for Zimmerman, but he never showed up, so he would start the Armitage one anyway. Time, tide and necropsy wait for no man, he thought. She was afforded the same conventions as all the other ones, but in this case he concentrated on her head. He took the top of her cranium by sawing along its sides, just above the eye line, away from the stoved-in part of her skull, like cracking off the top off a school egg. Once done, it was easy to separate the membranes of the brain and to simply cut it off its anchorage and lift it out of its cave like a frightened lobster. The whole left side of her temporal lobe was blood and no substance. The normally soft undulations of the cortex now stiff and suffused with pressured fluid and the full ventricles of the brain compressed and pushed over, flattened to one side. This one had clearly died of raised cranial pressure, pretty straightforward. The only thing of interest was what might have done it, possibly a baseball bat, with its wider end of the wound in its depths and the rounded surrounding hemorrhagic contusion. Or maybe a golf club. They're a little more common in the secular hills of Leafy Coburn, he figured. He made a small note. After taking a few more photographs of the fracture, he cut it out to make a plaster cast of the pulverised fragments. And after he dictated all of his macroscopic findings... Herbert Atwood loped off to the cinema, his favourite, French comedy. The new day saw new developments. For all the speculation on the Armitage case, it would be over by lunchtime. The remorse of one poor soul, unused until then to any hint of violence, Mikos Englazos, one of the fathers of an abused boy, unable to sleep, had turned himself into the police that morning, trembling and afraid of their retribution. He had sat in with his wife Sylvia at all of the Archbishop's meetings, had watched Agnes Armitage studiously take down notes in such a prim and proper way that he had expected her to write some school essay on what she had just heard. Such fake compassion. She would feign some interest and go on about where she might take her next holidays, as if all meant so much of nothing to her when the minute detail of each pernicious act had meant everything to him. She was oblivious to his anger and his humiliation. Where had his piety gotten him? She would not know anything but the split second of her end. He hated her, <coughs> and in a fit followed her home and cracked her on the scone with a work hammer, just as he was about to say the dinner just as she was about to say the dinner grace. Tossed a few things around as an afterthought to make it appear like a robbery. The duty sergeant had given him a cigarette, but he just sat there with it unlit and dangling from his mouth. He didn't even smoke. The procession of lawyers had told him in all their rushed babble that there might be some temporary insanity plea, but try as he might, he could not accept their advice to remain quiet, and had shouted for all and sundry to hear that, given life over, he would do it all again. Who was the victim now, he had asked rhetorically. The Lord might drive him to hell, but he reminded anyone who would listen that old Armitage would be amongst the first to greet him there when he arrived. It might have been an understatement to say that the shit hit the fan that afternoon. 
The Herald admittedly placed the revelations of the Armitage case on its page five. <clears throat> but by the morning, even the national newspapers had the story and its related implications as a leader on page one. Inglasus had decided against any legal representation, at least in the short term, and brayed on about his own guilt being a product of that burdened by the church. He came across at least in part as a mixture of the devil himself and a saint. Power to the people, but at any price. By mid-afternoon it had all gotten too much for him and his remorse had led to the forensic psychiatrist being called in and for a prison watch organised to ensure his safety from self-harm. There was, however, no discounting the ingenuity of any radical, and if one were to read the initial papers between the lines, there Inglazos rested, somewhere between an annoying god-botherer at one end and a fanatic at the other. But over time, such was the sine wave of public opinion that the editorials mellowed their morning outrage to by the dusk editions genuinely feeling sorry for the man. In some anguish, Teddy called the Premier but could not get through. It was a day of high-stakes politics that would see Ketterglue just survive a no-confidence motion after gifts he had received had been traced to family contractors working on his Margaret River holiday home. He couldn't call Teddy back anyway, as he had bigger things to worry about. The days afterward pushed the Armitage murder off the front page, but there was no expectation that it would go away because of the heat of the local politics. It was a different kind of journalism that covered the different loyalties and faiths between the church and the state, and which led to the vociferous drip-drip angst of a local vigilante group unrelated to KSEC, baying now for the Archbishop's blood. Emboldened, the, the other family of one abused little child, the Hutchinsons came forward with nothing more compelling than a photograph of their innocent son, now defiled by Pippin. Soon enough, the journos would roughhouse them all. Agitators camped out all night at the Chancery were now calling in full-throated voice for answers to their age-old rebels' questions. Give us some answers, was the collective shout. When do we want them, they chanted. Now, was the reply in unison. And then the obligatory intonation. Hey, hey, ho, ho, Teddy Shistoff's gotta go. It was the generic song of the professional protester. In voice... No one struggled with pronunciation of his last name now, and it fell sweetly into their accusatory rhyme. Soon enough, it too couldn't be ignored. Port Hedland was the industrial and administrative centre for the region, but it looked fairly disorganised and provincial. There were four duelling bars set in challenge to one another on each of the corners of the main street. The one least frequented had a topless barmaid, and a pawn and prawn afternoon on Sundays when local girls could come and take their clothes off behind a cage of chicken wire and patrons could eat raw prawns from a communal bucket. As the friendly stop after the morning's church service, the finesse of 21st century culture hadn't quite made it this far. The local prefecture, such as it was, had supplied Laura with a copy of all the Matu deaths for the administrative district in the last ten years. There were 107 of them, almost all occurring in custody. That said a lot right there. Good God, nearly one a month. The conclusion, intoxicated or under the influence or even cracked, was officially recorded as if this by itself was a sufficient diagnosis. Each, she thought, would have been a coronial inquest on its own, but only about half had seen the eyes of the coroner. That was an entire thesis right there, she thought, but not for today. Perhaps she could shift from the law to journalism, but then she looked at Barnsley's life and decided against it all. She thought about what her father would have wanted her to do and could not for the life of her figure it out, or even now remember the features of his face. Tears welled up inside her, the first for a long time, and she couldn't distinguish whether it was for the loss of her old man or from all the carnival of needless and unheeded death in front of her. As Barnes came in after a lie in sleep, she wiped the tears off her cheek with the back of her hand and sniffed up all her unhappiness in one snivelling go, the way people pulling themselves together just do. She was starting to have a bit of buyer's remorse on that thesis. What have you found out? Barnes asked. She laid out all the names and the mugshots. Well, said Barnes, jettisoning, 
jettisoning the custody as we are left with 11. He counted them all on his fingers and fanned out the files in one of the quieter interview rooms. Three of them unsolved. Here, the eight others were all settled and convicted. Two of those in jail are dead. See here? He pointed to all the relevant parts, thumbing his way through each record. One of a heart attack four years ago, and the other one on kidney dialysis. Carked it just last month. So what of the three left them? One out in Broome, Matu, pearl fisherman, found on the beach with a rope round his neck. Doesn't seem relevant to our needs. He dispensed with the poor man, throwing the file onto the floor. No 15 minutes of fame there, then. The final two remaining have some commonality with Lisa's murder. One could not be it for sure. A young girl of 19, still with the ligature around her neck, and a simple series of twists. No sexual assault. Found in the barn of her uncle's house, and the uncle disappeared up to Arnhem. Yeah, no one's going to find him out there. No, that's not it. She was bipolar, too. Probably did it herself. What's that autoerotic thing, Laura smiled. Oh, fuck off, said Barnes. I hope you're not turning into some sort of callous monster. What about the last one, she asked, ignoring his bait. That can't be it either, Barnes replied. A little boy of nine, strangled all right, and found in bushland at Tom Price. At what? she asked. Oh, it's an old mining town, almost deserted. Now they were going to build a museum up there, just like that one at Longreach. Not a stockman's, but an iron ore miner's hall of fame. Can you imagine it? No one went for it. What a shit heap. Makes Port Hedland look like a thriving metropolis. They both laughed. It seemed unimaginable. Well, what are the kids, she asked. Barnes looked again at the file. Four years ago, Clint Hughes, age nine. Matu, full blood, resident, Tom Price. Ferntree Primary School, Tom Price. Our Lady of Lourdes, affiliated, Tom Price. Here's a conclusion. Oh, great, he said. A throttling. How helpful. And then below, handwritten S.A. Question mark. What's that? Laura asked. Oh, possible sexual assault. No details at all. Barnes was certainly disappointed. At the bottom of the page was the stamp U.O. and two smaller second red stamps, poorly aligned, M.F.T.P. They left the interview area and went downstairs to the duty room. There's a woman swearing in the foyer outside about her stolen fucking doll check. The duty sergeant holding a cigarette in his hand was trying to calm her. What is this, Barnes asked in the middle of the fracas, pointing to the annotation at the bottom of the page. After telling the woman to shut up, the sergeant put on his glasses. U is unsolved, O is open, case open, MF is microfilm and TP is Tom Price. You'll have to go up there. He went back to wrestling with a woman. Fuck, no electronic records. Will be a long time before they ever become digitised. Fucking Stone Age. The sergeant overheard and chauvinistically didn't seem pleased. We're going to flip for it to see who goes. Barnes and Laura compared notes. It was a little like sharing a crossword together. Those triumphant moments when everything fits and then the crestfallen bit when one becomes despondent and still leaves large swathes of a task undone. It was all too incomprehensible, far too speculative. Was this journalism, she thought? And what a poor little Lisa then. Sexual assault, but more a violation. Someone known to her without a struggle, whose only surprise was the viciousness of the attack. What could a little girl have known to throw this thing, this him or her, into such a rage? Oh yes, it might still be a her, and someone local, not a highway stray. Could there be a second one at Tom Price? It was a long way to travel for a binary answer. Barnes was now so confident of Laura's skills, her nose, that only she need go, and he could make his way back home. Time for him, he figured, to write his story and put it into copy. After she had returned to her room and gathered together her thoughts, she came back to wish Barnes good night before the drive out first thing in the morning. His door was open, the TV blaring with the rugby. She took off her shoes and lay on his bed. She liked the smell of his cologne. She knocked on the back of the door to let him know she was in and he called her to come into the bathroom. Naked, he was getting into the bath and beckoned her to join him. She hesitated. Barnsley had seen better days with a great soft paunch that hung downwards pulling at his navel. But his face was nice and at one time some might have called him handsome. 
Why not? She slipped her dress off and quickly unhooked her bra, shimming her panties down and kicking them onto the counter. He could count himself lucky he thought he was about to fuck such a beautiful young woman, but she knew how skewed the role of these dice were. They played with one another before she mounted on top of him in the soapy water. It was nice, and she had nothing to complain about. Barnsley had a right to be proud. Afterwards, sitting on him with her back turned towards him, he moved his hands to her breasts, soaping them and talking. She asked him about Zimmerman, and he told her the whole story. His erection powered itself up a little once more. She knew that she was good at coaxing things out of people. She rose fairly early for the drive along the Great Northern, the longest stretch of highway in the country, and although not as soporific as the Gun Barrel Highway much farther south, it was well known for its fatalities. Both roads were infamous for their levelling monotony. There'd be no falling asleep here. Plenty of water, two fresh 20-litre petrol tanks, three spare radial tyres and the energy food, a large box of iced bovos and thick Monte Carlo biscuits sandwiched over rich jam. The best. The heaviest biscuit in the assorted package. Out past the Nanatara Road that becomes the Nanatara Witnoom and then the Nanatara Mungina. How imaginative, she thought. Off far across the broad hills, swinging into town, courtesy of the nameless valley road. They must have been too lazy to entitle something so unforgiving, she figured. It sounded the stuff of legend, but instead turned into the mundane. At least she could say at parties that she'd driven it, and all by herself. The mark of the place was a small piece of tin telling visitors that the town is part of the Shire of Ashburton, a stretch of land three times the size of Belgium, and hardly a soul to see. A population of just 5,000 with the local member of parliament shunting across to shake the hands of his electorate, stretching from far up in Kananara all the way down to Quaradding. She imagined that every hand grasped with undivided attention by a country politician was pretty critical up here. This was not a place for pissing people off. It was already dark and time for a beer and some iTunes. The only way of getting through this crap was by isolating herself and as she couldn't find any lights in the place, she slept in her car. In the morning, she fixed herself up for the coppers and walked across to the station. It was next door to a sell-all store that had three large cages of rabbits for sale out the front. In the back, there was an old microfiche machine with its viewing plastic cracked and scuffed at a shoebox filled with microfilm sheets in no particular order. What a drag. She flashed the silvered images across the screen, moving them at whip speed only intensified her headache. Into it an hour or two was unproductive and she went outside for a stale coffee and a glazed doughnut that had seen better days. One cigarette turned into five. She endured the pathetic come-on from a kid far younger than her on a skateboard. Fuck off, pencil dick, she said. She almost spat it out, she was so used to it. Another hour, and she hit on Clint Hughes. She wound back the print sheet, scrolling it up and down to check his relevance, that he was the one. The image had been copied poorly in half-tone grayscale. The head turned to the left, suffused and lifeless. But there it was, the same important signs, clustered marks on his neck, barely visible, but in five bunches of bruises, and in the middle, a cruciate impression. How on earth could she copy it? They'd not let her, uh, they would not lend her the film so that it could be scanned and digitised. A simple iPhone picture of the magnification was all that she could do, but it seemed good enough. She emailed it to Barnes, and as he had taught her, to herself. She checked that it had arrived to her email, and then an excited reply. Is there anything in common? I didn't expect anything from this. Dig, dig was his reply text. An attendance record from the Ferntree Primary School, a terse note from the principal whose name was smudged off but who'd left a flamboyant signature, a Vespers sermon from the Pilbara Echo that spoke of the little boy from Our Lady of Lourdes Catholic Mission to pray for him and keep his memory safe, officiating Father Quentin Andrews, coroner's report not attached, CTP 2013 047A. What of that sexual assault? 
blood between the child's legs, but nothing more. They would have to petition. She scratched down the reference number. Laura lifted herself up and stretched like a happy cat. A walk down a small green hump took her to the school. The sound of the recitation tables came from one room and she opened it to see a young teacher with six Aboriginal children running over there two times. Can I help you? she politely asked. I'm looking for your principal. We don't have one. Mr Featherby used to run the school but he retired and lives in Derby. How long have you been here then? Oh, about four months. My contract is for one year but I think I'll stay for a bit longer. She had a sugary enthusiasm that wasn't yet dampened. Laura asked her about Clint Hughes, but she didn't know, and none of the children could help. She would ask around from the other teachers and get back, but nothing most likely would come of it. She said her goodbyes, and the children shouted with the welcoming happy laugh they throw at any stranger. The only other task on this wild goose chase was the Reverend Father. Perhaps he might shed some light. But Our Lady of Lourdes was now a finger-licking chicken house, and the trail, if there was one, had cooled off a mite. She went back to the municipal house and had another cigarette. The vestry record showed that the church had closed with a little more than $60,000 missing from its coffers. The microfilm plates recorded an investigation headed by a Mrs Alverdi, Lady Mayoress of the municipality of Tom Price, and for those who may not have known, head bowler at the Tom Price Bowls Club, open since 1957. It came as no great surprise that the investigation had not gotten very far, and it gradually fell off the pages of the local magazines as Laura rapidly scrolled across time. And a father, Andrews? He too had passed off to a higher calling, so it seemed. After returning to Perth, he had left little impression and had died four months later from pancreatic cancer, just shy of his 50th birthday. No obituary around that time, at least on these stencil files. And no $60,000 either. And nothing else on the hunt. The Hughes family had left after the tragedy, perhaps to Kununurra, or maybe up to Normanton on the Gulf of Carpentaria, but no one was sure. Hostile country. Needles and haystacks up there. Laura knew that she would need a little help, and it was time to coax Zimmerman out of his hole. Chapter 9 Pippin had arrived unexpectedly at the office of the Chancery. Even with an interim secretary, Teddy was now much easier to get to, and the appearance of Pippin, which would never have happened had Mrs Armitage been here, was an embarrassment. The Archbishop's Chief of Staff, Hilary Edmund Carter, was still in Rome trying to reassure the pontiff's people that ascension to the cardinalate remained a viable option for Schistoff. His meetings had not gone well and Teddy was deciding if matters were so delicate or perhaps so bad that they demanded a visit to Rome and a papal audience. They could spin that rightly if needs be, he thought. Organisation for the audience had proven far more complicated than it ever had in the past and with Pippin waiting outside, as much as with a new Pope at the Holy See, things might just have tipped the balance the other way. The press would surely discover that Pippin had been there and they would, they would no doubt have a field day. It's a hard thing inviting someone into an office whose presence threatens one's very existence. They'd met only three times before, once at the interview to ordination, a second time at the ordination itself, and that third time after the committee had convened to examine the allegations of Pippin's abusive behaviour. It was not like he had much of a handle on things, and the Archbishop never came in either to congratulate or to admonish. It wasn't his style. Teddy had never been much of a hands-on bloke, and if he spoke to any of his priests, it was not by design. After that committee, it had all been fairly clandestine, pushed away and in Teddy's mind settled. But it hadn't been settled at all. Grumbling along, gnawing away like a cancer, Pippin's name had appeared in many a dossier and memorandum, in recommendations, regulations and confidential diocesan communiques. There was so much of this stuff that there was no way to shift Teddy's fingerprints from it all. Who was this Pippin anyway? And why was he menacing at the point of Teddy's greatest triumph? Small vociferous <coughs> crowds had been gathering the last few days out near the Commons lawn, shouting for answers to questions 
Teddy didn't even know about, about people he'd never even heard of. But perhaps he might have heard of them if he'd ever investigated, or not pushed away furtive notes into the secret compartment of his desk. Armitage would have handled it all. But she's gone, and Carter was about as useless as tits on a bull, he thought, when it came to diplomacy. Who were these people holding their home-made placards? That was something he didn't usually see in this country. He looked across from the bay windows. One read, Pippin is a monster. Another, cut off Pippin's prick. Good God. Particularly distasteful. How did it come to this? The papers had initially started with dribs and drabs, allegations of one youth abused by Pippin and another PE master whom it didn't name. For fuck's sake, Teddy thought, diddled in tandem. Trickles of things in the newspapers turned more voluminous, louder, angrier. The stories had traction, each a little more daring, each more titillation. The Hutchinsons were interviewed in the popular weekly Your Home and then by a woman from 60 Minutes with a constant smirk on her face. Can you tell us some of the things she asked in a hushed tone as though it would just be between them and no one else would know? Well, I can't really say, you know, on television, said the farmer, father, looking at the floor. And then he relented. Well, you know, he'd play with his whacker and make him watch, that sort of thing. Christ. Teddy read it all, incredulous that it was now becoming public despite his best efforts. He'd had several meetings and messages from Martin Shrewsbury. Urgent, call immediately. But each time he rang Shrewsbury, he was at lunch or in a meeting or God knows where, squeezing Lady So-and-So's hand or putting the bite on the local rotary. When he finally did get through, Shrewsbury's usually jokey tone was sombre and formal. Donation from ISB Holdings has been withheld. Another half million pending the outcome of what exactly, Your Grace? I'm sorry, Teddy replied more, in that he didn't seem to follow than as some form of mea culpa. It was like he had come in mid-sentence, or perhaps Shrewsbury was speaking to someone else. ISB, International Science Bank, that mob that supports creationism in the schools. They were our fourth biggest donors. A little fucking unhappy about you and your priests waiting for a denouement. Shrewsby liked the foreign phrases and he didn't swear often. Teddy remembered. The think tank out at ISB would fund a drive for the diocese to run its newest schools, the most modern teaching facilities, all computerised, clean as a whistle, the finest and most up-to-date technology needed to fight old Darwin. Now it might all be a losing battle. Well, what the fuck do you expect me to do about it? Teddy snapped back. If Shrewsbury wanted profanities, he was not alone. The other end went quiet, and Shrewsbury whispered back, I expect you to do your job, not push it away under some carpet. They're going to come at you with, what did you know, and when did you know it? And you'd better have some answers, otherwise you're not long for this world, my son. Father to you, sir, he replied angrily. Well, we'll just see about that then. And the phone clicked off. To have gone one day from sliced bread to this... The lack of respect made him nauseated. It was something he'd been used to all his adult life, and this electrician turned church president speaking to him this way was intolerable. God, he'd forgotten about Pippin, who was still outside. He ushered him in, ignoring the extended hand. Atwood called Zimmerman's mobile phone with the news that the levels of Rehypnol and the Jeffreys girl were what he called astronomical. Enough to take down a moose, he had said in his inimitable style. It didn't prove that she knew her assailant, as you suggested, but it has explained the lack of struggle. There'd be no reason to go out there to the bush with someone you didn't know. In that, you're probably right. Zimmerman punched his fist in the air and it drew the stare of a fellow officer. No one there was particularly keen to see the Jew prosper. Fuck them all, he thought. And, Professor, he inquired... And serious sexual assault. Her uterus was almost ripped out. Large hematomas extending out from its warm to both broad ligaments. Blood in the pelvis. We didn't find any semen, however. No DNA anywhere. Not in the vagina or the anus nor under the fingernails. But plenty of splinters of wood. Maple, if I had to guess. Last meal of oysters, if that helps. But not so uncommon round those parts. So she's been rammed by a what, he asked, a baseball bat? 
Possibly and repeatedly, Atwood said. So what does it mean, Herb? The professor volleyed back. Well, Aidan, he replied, emphasising Zimmerman's first and least spoken name. They both laughed, smoothing over the informalities. They'd shared too many grisly cases not to have developed their friendship. You need to speak to a forensic psychiatrist. Intense, uncontrollable rage. Hostility to someone that he knew. Mummy issues, I don't know. But seriously, the, vo- the violence is two people. Jill Masters, do you know her? Out at Murdoch University. She's always on the box talking about this sort of stuff. Well, not this exactly, but about predators, strangers. You'd think there'd be one of these serials around every corner, lurking behind every bush. Maybe there is. It is Murdoch, after all. And they both laughed hard. The poor Jeffrey's kid must have known something, lifted the veil. That's what you have to find out, Aidan. Who she knew with the power to do that. Zimmerman hung up and turned on his computer, waiting for Atwood's official report. It didn't make much sense. Parmadou was a total shithole. Surely anyone with any sort of power at all would have used it to leave. He googled Parmadou for the umpteenth time and saw pictures of the shanty house. A classy-looking menu du jour and smiling Aboriginals with their arms around white people. Totally unrealistic. He hadn't checked his Facebook for a while. He surfed through his messages and the notifications. Most of it was anodyne stuff with pictures of those annoying buggers who are always showing off that now they're in the airport or now they're in a restaurant or now they're taking a dump, always making others feel somehow that their life is just that bit shittier than it should be, like everyone should be doing something else, something better, not wasting it all. He he scrolled through the friend requests, one from his auntie Beryl, a crazy lady from Melbourne who was always trying to matchmake him, another from a school chum, what a turd, Happy to report that he's just opened his second barber shop in Wonthaggy, a great place to cut your hair, the advertisement said. What? And one from Laura Bertelli, messaged simply with her number. She wanted to meet and talk about the Jeffreys case and had been introduced by his friend Chip Barnes. She added his name in bold, maybe to put the wind up him a little. She was just another one who might know of his secret trysts with underage women. He added her as a friend, resolving to call the next day and closing off the bedside light. He didn't sleep a wink. There was something odious about Pippin. The round John Lennon glasses, the trimmed moustache, the tartan waistcoat. He looked like a vaudeville act more than someone uh, anyone would want to confide in. He was in such deep trouble and yet his supreme confidence was breathtaking. Well, your grace, he almost shouted, what are we going to do about all this? Teddy grasped the edge of his desk with such bare-knuckled force that it shifted. He was livid with rage. What are we going to do? We aren't going to fucking do anything, you snivelling little prick. Have you seen the papers? I can't protect you anymore. There are wolves at the door. I never should have listened to all those who told me to ignore it. You and your fucking willy. Pippin's sign waved somewhere between contrition and defiance. Teddy's anger subsided a little as he almost sided with this piece of filth. Some mumblings about a deprived childhood, an alcoholic father, his own abuses that had led him on to reproduce a life so poorly lived. As if Teddy would feel remorse for all that anger. Or maybe it would just make the whole thing that bit worse. Why should he be expected to rummage through the cockeyed life stories of everyone who ever wanted to enter the priesthood? He found himself formulating a defence for this little weasel and had to check himself mid-thought, normalising him, making him the subject of pity. This wouldn't hold any water. He whispered at Pippin sotto voce like they were confidants together in some conclave. This will not do. You are no longer one of us. You are henceforth on your own and I shall testify if needs be against you. And as for your excuses, blaming it on Daddy... I'm handing over documents concerning your activities to the police. It's something I should have done a long time ago. Alleged activities, Your Grace, alleged. He smiled a sort of come-hither look that maybe he used on the children. Repulsive, Teddy thought. Truly repulsive. But he was more lamenting for his lost scarlet than anything else. Teddy could feel the robes and the cardinal's office slipping away. Saving your own skin then, Teddy, is it? Is that what it'll be then? Pistols at dawn. 
Pippin pulled open the door to leave, and Teddy knew this accursed priest was no match for the full might of St Joseph's. What was this perverted bullshit worth against the charge that he had waited too long? Given his priest the benefit of the doubt, both would be bloodied, he conceded, but Pippin would be the one at the finish needing the transfusion. You cannot take Mother Church down with you because you believe we were too lenient. Surely that cannot be your strategy. Pippin's reddened face and eyes told him that most of his fight was out anyway. All that he could do was embarrass them further. It proved a day of surprising efficiencies. Nancurvis had called Zimmerman earlier in order to let him know that he would be emailing a list of all the deaths in the Martu. There were two which he had cross-checked with those committed to the Broome Psychiatric. One psychotic, the other with severe depression. Both gunshot wounds by their own hands. Nothing much in that. And four files left open. All young men recently in custody. Perhaps he underestimated Nancurvis. There was a good cop in there somewhere. Maybe the light hadn't quite been extinguished by disappointment. The coroner's listing showed no sexual assault in the four outstanding. Scanning the reports of four different coroners, the wording seemed familiar and rote. None had made any attempt to hide their contempt. Abbo, drunk, abusive, unemployed, prior arrest record, DUI, 1984, 86, 87, 93. Rehabilitation Unit, Royal Darwin Hospital, January 1994 to March 1994, self-discharged, grievous bodily harm, August 1994, magistrates, Mr Justice William Atchison, acquitted. That was just one of them. But the others read almost the same. A quartet of drunks of whom the moat disinterested copper might never have given a second glance. He found himself lapsing into the zone occupied by that new normal. And even so light on detail, it didn't much advance the cause of little Lisa. Pages and pages to read of intoxicators and domestic abuses, fracas. Each had a different arresting officer. Zimmerman copied all their details down, but running them would waste his time and effort. That was a job for an underling. On the off chance, he emailed the head of human services, asking for information on the current whereabouts of the four arresting officers. He ran over the coroner's report on each one, but it was only for broad interest. It didn't help Lisa one bit to know that each Martu had been bashed within an inch of his life and was then released from Chokey to turn up dead within a week. He checked the lists. None of these made it into the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. He reread the sad litany of the four. God, what a collection. Perfunctory reports, dismissive, all resisting arrests, supposedly. All certainly should not have been released, and it was unclear to whom, with what recognizance and what follow-up. It's easy, he thought, to sit in judgment, how do they put it, to Monday morning quarterback. Zimmerman had been a few times on the wrong side of investigations himself, but standing at the end with all the facts jigsawed into place can only then show how silly or unnecessary some strategic move had been. One can all too readily see all of it asked backwards, he thought. The kind of thing that, with the big picture, never revealed itself at the time, not even incrementally. The 2020 is always so instructive. The retrospectoscope always clears the air. Today they'd never have gotten away with this kind of thing. No physicians, psychiatrists or addiction counsellors. Cracked skulls, missing teeth, rousable but confused, aggressive and disorientated let to sleep it off. The small particular hemorrhages in the back of the eyes and across the midbrain, but none of the bigger collections of blood that might have formed beneath the seat of their smashed scones and their depressed fractures. The sort of pressure on the brain that by rights should have placed equal pressure on the force and on their communities. How convenient. He could never have imagined that some damning finding <coughs> could be deliberately omitted. Some basic forensic test left undone. That was, after all, his own field of work, and there were coronial inquiries, committees and commissions, all of which would have asked the relevant questions. No charge of heinous incompetence could possibly be laid, but rather the sad feeling, peeling through all those pages, 
that the obvious itself had been overlooked, the collusion between authority and carer all the way down the chain of command to anticipate the inevitable and the unstoppable. But from it a chance to beef up all the securities, increase the diligence of the suicide watchers and to expand the social services. And still at the end of all that, find no lessons to learn. All young men wasted and now no doubt forgotten. Names but no connections. Unable to fall into line with their new unborn generations. Black Jimmy's lost history. His undead as he called those lost souls. Zimmerman went back and forth over the files for the next hour until sleep overtook him. It had nothing to do with Lisa, but the time hadn't been wasted. Laura came back to Zimmerman confidently. After all, she had something on him, and either he didn't even know it or he couldn't be sure. Her seduction, if she needed to employ it, would be easy. Now she had no fear. That had all been used up with Barnes, who had left her with more confidence than when she had first started. His gift. She laid out all that she knew about Lisa in the open air of the Facebook page. She supplied her email address, and if he contacted her, she would, be, she would happily show him what she referred to as her school project. In the event that he decided not to cooperate, she would write it anyway. There was no need to blackmail him. That might come later. Zimmerman was dismayed by how public this had all become. Seemingly everyone and their dog was on this case, and its new openness bothered him. Short news stories had reappeared on WAPTV, and the letters section of the Perth Examiner was replete with theories. It was a brush fire of assumptions. Some sensible to check out all the unsolved and uh, unsolved and to cross-check all inmates released after prolonged sentences for capital crimes. Thanks for the help. We'd done all that, thank you very much, Zimmerman thought. So enthusiastic. Still others were just stupid and some either so xenophobic or frankly just racist. Somehow some accused, somehow some so accustomed used little Lisa's death to vilify whole groups of recently arrived immigrants with not a leg to stand on, like they would come over in urgent need of topping off an Aboriginal girl. Yeah, that would have been high on the agenda. But like it or not, the Jeffreys case had become a lightning rod for every crank with an axe to grind over all those refugees coming to steal our jobs, our houses and, God forbid, our women. No doubt the things anyone now needed to worry about was the work of one of them Muslims with nothing to associate them to any crime except the rancid fear a local would-be MP with unfettered, unfettered ex access to a microphone could drum up. Somehow Lisa's murder had attracted all those who wanted to ban the burqa and the whole thing had gotten confused in a mess of ill-directed hatred that spilled its venom out each day in more malevolent style into the daily newspapers and sometimes onto the streets. If it wasn't a bunch of zealots prowling the gardens of the Chancery, tearfully calling for the church to come clean on its sexual abuse scandal, then it was the other side of the street baying for immigrant blood. When it had all turned into a vigilante society filled with placards and the faces of the normally quiet looking for someone to blame. They really didn't need to print it if it wasn't real news, surely. In amongst all that poison, no one there most likely had ever even met an Aboriginal kid, let alone had the fire in the belly to find her killer. The papers spewed all their bullshit out and it was based on nothing. It annoyed the crap out of him and he scrunched the paper into a rough ball. Any meeting that he would go to was always well researched beforehand, even if it was in cyberspace. She'd, left much, she'd not left much of an electronic impression except maybe that of a little girl doing girly things. Just some Google images of her at a couple of parties. Not too shabby, he thought. Always with a drink or a cigarette in her hand, coolly rolled her owns. Smiling the smile of good dentition, vibrant, happy. They decided to meet at the Wigan Pen in O'Shaughnessy Street, the bar frequented by all the barristers of the Inns of Court, a place of mixed reverence, and the bawdy tales of the different sessions, benignly glowered upon by the caricatured images on its walls of all the judges and lawyers who had passed through since the Great Depression. He recognised her from her photos, 
less tanned and a little less vital, but still the sort of woman who enters a room and all heads turn, a focus of freshness. He did the double shake of her hand, clasping it inside both of his, and he gave her his most intense stare, made her feel like she was the only one in the room, and she alone was all that mattered. Didn't she know that a copper was her best friend and she could trust him, as if lying to him would be like lying to God? What have you got for me, young lady, he said, as if they were at a job interview, and he just asked her how she might handle some office gossip. She laid out all that she'd worked through with Barnes' advice, and she told him that it was as much surmise as anything, as they'd never been able to see the coroner's or police reports. For someone working largely from published reports, she'd pushed through the evidence as logically as was possible. He warmed to her, even if he imagined that she might eventually get in his way. Barnes had already emailed him bragging that she was perfectly fine in the sack and Zimmerman callously felt no constraints to ultimately compare notes on her sexual prowess should he, as he expected, get that far. There really was no reason on earth why he should take such a risk, but he handed her a copy of Atwood's report. She took it calmly, hardly believing her luck and felt excited to be part of the investigation, not realising that he was playing her a little just to breach her knickers. She would have been able to get it from Barnes anyway, but she enthusiastically thanked him as one might a teacher handing over test answers. She was really far too young for him, he thought, but it had never stopped him before, and she knew that anyway. In amongst the photographs was the one with the toes tied together. Barnes had kept that image from her, and recalling their time with Black Jimmy, now she had realised his deceit. What do you think this means, she asked, in her most come-hither smile, although she knew the answer. Having just been deceived once by a man, she was not about to repeat the experience. Part of Aboriginal law, like tethering a corpse so it cannot run wild in the afterlife, I think it meant that she knew something of great significance, big enough to have her killed. They both peered at the image, and Zimmerman, after a full half-minute, added, Roughly. He had at least for now passed her little test. In the event you're intending to research Matu funeral practices, don't bother, he said matter-of-factly. Calming old spirits of the land, they vary from one skin to another. Some will take up the breath of an animal into their own spirit. Others, fearful, will talk of tales of their spirit animals turned to stone. You can get lost in their stories. But the ritual would have been done by an elder who knew something of these matters. It would have been important to layer out just right. Zimmerman showed Laura the scan of the page on Aboriginal customs he had made from the Parbidou Library. She seemed a little shocked. There, that's an elder, laid out like a Christmas ham. He checked himself immediately. I mean, that was insensitive. I, I meant it as a ritual. These up here are all rituals, and I mean no disrespect. He looked around, perhaps, for the thought police. One of her own, then. But why the sexual violence? She thumbed through Atwood's report. It seemed so extreme, here in the file, and she pointed to an area underlined which highlighted the savage nature of the attack. Atwood himself had left three exclamation marks around the printed text. Yes, too extreme for one of them. This was family. Their flesh and their blood. You see, that's my dilemma. He must have known her, stalked her, waited for her, then strangled her, and in one split second violated her with a careless and a terrible frenzy. This they knew, but Zimmerman became agitated. And then stop, quieten again, add the Aboriginal rituals, calmly bring her toes together. It says in here, as Zimmerman pointed to his scan of the book, that the nails can be ripped off too as a sign of disrespect for all that the deceased may loosely blabber about what she knew. You see my problem? He turned the pages of his notebook over and over. They were covered in different sized and different coloured question marks and arrows that led to a different stream of conclusions if the higher axiom had been accepted. What they agreed upon now mattered. Each drawn algorithm led to a different psychological profile and he knew that what they would accept just then about the composition of the killer would trace its way to an entirely different conclusion. To sit her up and then lay her out as if nothing had happened. He's telling us something, like she's an exhibit then done perhaps by someone who knows the rituals but isn't one of them. So much like our own church, she said. Laura was showing her uncertainties. Someone who's read the observances but really has no business being there. 
she continued. Zimmerman's eyes widened a little. It was not something he'd even considered. Someone who knew of their customs, but not a tribal elder. Someone respected and taken in like an adopted son. She led him to a different place than he had been before they had met. Even if she had not told him anything, he rumbled her and confirmed the skewed nature of their new, impaired friendship. At any rate, that's where I am, and you, my beautiful thing, haven't but nil now given me precisely nothing. Several bears had loosened him up to appeal to a sense of curiosity on so many levels. He placed a soft hand on her thigh, and she made no attempt to shift it off. One emboldened by the beer, and the other nearly paralysed by it. He coldly thought of Barnes now as a rival and dismissed him. Anyone moving sexually on Barnes in a favourable direction, he thought, must have appeared to him like a godsend. Well, this one here, she said, this second one, or rather the first one that Barnes and I found, might have been like a practice, if you will, a honing of the skills. She outlined for him how they had settled on the file of Clint Hughes and about her tedious visit to the tedium of Tom Price and of the officiating second priest, Father Andrews. Here I've stopped, and there is where I need your help, Aidan. We know nothing of the Hughes' secret post-mortem file, she said. Ah, the imprimatur of the force. Precisely as I would have put it, she replied, except that she had no idea what imprimatur was exactly. Zimmerman tumbled through the security firewalls of his remote access point and smoothly entered Atwood's post-mortem listings. TP 2013 047A was not where it should have been between 046 and 048. Now that's not right. We should have complete access to all the coronial reports, he said, worried. He emailed Atwood with a specific request, handed over. He was through to some special place now where Laura could never have navigated, and it was sites like this where one could exercise an authority. Handed over meant precisely that. It was no thinly veiled threat. If the file had indeed gone missing, then it would be obstruction of an investigation, and there would be consequences. Someone could even go to jail over something like that. Atwood called him immediately and told him that 047's listing had been removed at the back end of 2013 under the direction of the Assistant Commissioner Constance Gray. It was merged with another more important file. It had been such an unexpected move that Atwood had kept a private copy but made sure to store it in his personal file at home and not on his post-mortem inventory server. That ambitious Constance Gray... Not content with winning the Constabulary Medal of Freedom for her work saving underprivileged Aboriginal children, the lamentable case of Chester Naidu had brought her to almost worldwide prominence. The young boy nearly starved to death by his abductors and Gray's relentless team, which included Zimmerman and his immediate boss, Chief Inspector Kevin Monroe, pulling Chester free at the eleventh hour from the depths of a water tank in the middle of the Simpson Desert. Miss Gray could do no wrong. Rising like a shining comet, she seemed unstoppable and there were those who were grooming her to be Premier. And after that, who knows? As for young Naidu, few had cared that ever since he was unable to leave the house in agoraphobic crisis. At least he was alive. Why would Commissioner Gray want the file and why merge the two? They call her Queen Gray and the Queen gets what the Queen wants. Ours is not to reason why, Atwood intoned with a sigh. So, Herbert, where is it, old man? The rest of 047, I mean. I have it with me as we speak, he said. It was so unusual I kept details from his police file. What more is there, Herb? There must be more. We never proved sexual assault in young Hughes. There was a little bruising in the perineum, but no semen anywhere, no... DNA, and with respect, Atwood checked his enthusiasm at the door as he lagged off. A, a pristine anus. Great, I'm happy for you, and him. But this whole thing stinks a bit, doesn't it? We're talking about two discreet and different events. The little Naidu boy is the son of the iron ore magnate Deepak Naidu. Rich Tamil family came out here at the turn of the century and made it big in mining. 
Zimmerman had read of Naidu's plunging fortunes on the commodities market, a rags-to-riches-to-rags story that had cost him two years in the Perth Correctional for passing dirty cheques, and maybe a little to do with defaulting on half a billion dollars' worth of loans. So, Zimmerman was getting lost. So there was no way that Deepak Naidu would let out that his son would be buggered senseless. Atwood seemed sure of it. But what's the file merger about, Heard? I think it has to do with sexual assault, Aidan, or more perhaps the impression of sexual assault. And I think combining the two files was almost accidental. Well, not the secrecy so much. Someone high up all right meant to do that. But the link at any rate. You see, the forensics always thought that the young Naidu boy was sexually assaulted, but it was never proven. There was nothing to connect the files, really, but for the suspicion of buggery on the little ones. Zimmerman was growing impatient. Did the Naidus have anything to do with the Catholic Church? He was asking in hope. Nothing that I can see whatsoever. They were Hindus, for goodness sake. I don't think there was any last-minute conversions, if that's what you mean, Aidan. A little background laughter, but Laura was distressed. After conflation of these two files, suppression of Naidu caught the case of the little boy Hughes in its net. Both ended up under the table. In Naidu's case, we never caught his abductors, and Grey, in her brilliant style, made sure we found him before any exchange of ransom mummies. But it was so down pat that Tom Blart, Zimmerman stopped and trailed off mid-sentence, you know Blart from the Sentinel. Atwood quietly acknowledged a familiarity with Blart. Yes, he's an ass. Atwood said. That's the one. Well, ass or not, he wrote an op-ed piece that suggested that the whole Naidu thing was a set-up, just to promote Grey. At any rate, used for that purpose. A little speculative fiction, but hold on to your socks, Herb. No one from the department ever denied it. Or sued, for that matter. Zimmerman started preening a bit and salivated at the prospect of some official conspiracy, particularly one predicated on state-sponsored corruption. I've always felt that the Naidu case would be worth reopening. He lectured Atwood on the possible logistics. And as for Hughes, there was a different subversion of that case, Atwood added. He had his spies that fed his voracious appetite, and he had files on God knows what. Here, here it is. Suspicion for the Hughes murder fell onto a visiting prelate who had transiently been in the Pilbara, but then had moved down to Perth by the time of the little boy's death. But after that, the priest himself died of cancer. No one ever questioned him, as far as I can tell. Led him off the hook because he was too ill. All of the evidence was circumstantial. The case went a little cold after his death. No other suspects were ever discussed or questioned. Atwood chimed in with a little more detail. Teddy Shistoff had pressured the then Premier, Mark McCormick, to leave the offending priest be, untried and, more importantly, unknown. He'd behind that canonical law thing again, do you remember? At least that was part... That part was public. Ran behind his Latin liturgies. It's right here in the church justice to shield the sinners in doubt. Oh, another one of the buggering priests then. They're bringing themselves down, eh? Zimmerman seemed almost happy in his disrespect. No doubt if Teddy could have seen it so succinctly put in public, he might have understood his mistake. And more than that, why people were so riled up about it all. Laura looked disconsolate, but added, So that doubt remains and all washed cleans of sins undone. She was quoting directly now from Acts or Romans or some such, the principle of mercy, to accept all sinners by virtue of their doubt. It's where our presumption of innocence comes from, she pleaded. Well, perhaps in a perverted world, Zimmerman thought. Do you have the priest's name? Zimmerman asked excitedly. Atwood rummaged through the file. I'm going to drop the receiver a moment and Zimmerman could hear the wind rush of notes as they were flicking past Atwood's face. Here it is, here in the in the last page. There was a gravid and expected pause. Quentin Andrews. Zimmerman mouthed the name before Atwood had even started. What karma. Both files merged for the suspicion without proof, mind you, of sexual assault and both suppressed under pressure from different powerful forces. And what more do we know of Father Andrews, Herbert? Uh, summa cum laude, Cambridge, graduate in theosophy and hermeneutics. In what? Religious philosophy, a true theologian, 
They find solace in the meaning of meanings, in the rituals. They flagellate themselves over them, he said unwisely. Laura now took great offence. She had a passion for hermeneutics, squeezing out the meaning of the sacraments. It was part of every day, and she'd be hanged if these people were about to denigrate them. You know, Professor, that we're on speakerphone. Atwood apologised for his crudeness as best as he could from a distance. I think we're all getting off track, Zimmerman calmed. He could see that everyone was tired and saying things they didn't really mean. If anything, Atwood had so few people to speak to that he was in danger of using his goodwill capital up entirely. Very well, then. Why was there ever suspicion on the priest? Not much to go on. Just I think that he was a bit, uh, how shall I put it, uh, weird. Overly protective of the lads in the showers. Uh, fastidious, hygienist, that sort of thing. Spending a little too much time with a soft talc set, if you catch my drift. Atwood had strayed once more into Laura's discomfort zone, and again Zimmerman politely asked him to get back on track. He straddled over to her side. Flimsy evidence, that. I mean, to convict a priest on, or anyone on, it, it never went anywhere, and then in a trice he died. Some hushed rumours of touching by some boys, but nothing formal. And then the priest leaves almost immediately after the murder, with what exactly? The, the missing money? And, and it's a trifle. Even those stories had made their way down south under their own steam, with Atwood acknowledging the tale of the missing $60,000. Maybe $60,000 means more up there than it does here. You need to nail down information on Andrews, Atwood said. Even if the two killings are unrelated, the exclusion or implication of Andrews in either is a top priority. A good Catholic boy, reputable product of St Ignatius of Loyola, McCormick would have had no trouble sealing and suppressing the Hughes file at the behest of the Archdiocese, if that's how it came down. And Teddy had just become Archbishop at the time. Laura interrupted. Yeah, I remember it well. My family and I went up to see his investiture. He spoke about the province of the sanctified families, I recall, and the dangers of sexual temptation. Always great topics for virgins and eunuchs, Zimmerman chimed. So, Herb, anything else in 047? Just the communication surrounding it. It's legs. Oh, and here some abrasions under little Clint's fingers, iron filings and bits of chromium. It's a bit of stainless steel under the skin. Mean anything to you? Zimmerman wrote it down, but he couldn't place how it might have been useful. By the end, Laura seemed confused, if not a little angry, and Zimmerman just shook his head. She mouthed what the others were thinking. Well, that's only part of it. We have a dead priest, a missing bit of petty cash at best, and some inconclusive circumstantial assertions tying one, uh, trying to tie one murder that happened four years before with the one we're really interested in. Have I summarised it correctly? Something like that, said Zimmerman. We need to get out to the Chancery and find information on Andrews, he said. Hunt around, find his family if there is one, and also on Quartermain. It could, of course, be total bullshit. They finished all their surmises and Atwood rung off. She needed cheering up and she cupped Zimmerman's face in her hands, jumping up and inviting him for a beer. Beer would always clarify things she squealed and Zimmerman soberly reminded her that it was often the reverse. But there was no refusal on his part. The nearness of her had given him a slight hard-on and with her hands round his face like he was a small boy... His dick powered up to life that little bit more. <laughs> <laughs>